Welcome back to the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. It's Lindsay and I this week with a, another listener FAQ. This one um, was great. It's about the readouts on your Garmin watch, how they affect your nutrition, etc. So we touch on several different things about heart rate zones and how that affects nutrition. We talk about the load that Garmin determines on the watch, whether or not you can trust the caloric readout on the Garmin watch um, and a number of other things. So that's all in this episode. At the end, you will hear me talk about something that we are doing new in 2023. We have someone who's a great friend of mine who sort of does all the behind the scenes website stuff for Valley to Peak. He's been working on building a online course, which we are going to launch hopefully here within the next month. And there is a lot to that. If you're interested in that, there will be a sign up in the show notes. And finally, in a couple of weeks, we are going to have on Chantel from Uphill Athlete, and we are going to cover a lot of different things as it relates to training. And she's got a pretty robust resume in terms of studying high altitude, specifically how high altitudes affect us as people. And so we're going to talk through several things. I've had questions for her that people have asked me. And so I just would love to hear um, another perspective on the topic to give to you guys. So if you got any questions that you want her to answer, you can shoot those over to me. We'll try to weave those in as long as it doesn't create a long podcast because I have a feeling it's already going to be a good one. But you can send those to info at v2pnutrition.com. And uh, if you need anything, you can send it to that same email. So here is Lindsay and I this week about Garmin watches and the data on there and how much to trust them or not. Welcome back to the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. Lindsay's with me again this week, but there's been some fun stuff come up since we did this last. <laughs> huh? Well, we had the so we had the the banquet last night. That was something new and good turnout in Boise. They gave away a K4 and Mark, who's on the podcast a lot, um, you know, is connected close to Exo Mountain Gear. We're friends with those guys. They released a new pack called the K4 and uh, it's a lot of hype around that and for good reason. So if you haven't checked that out, you can you can go check that out or I'll put a link in there to do it. But it's Saturday and raining still and lots and lots and lots of snow in the mountains. So we're wondering if we'll ever actually even be able to get to enjoy spring, but hopefully it's around the corner. Uh, we will go ahead and dive into the question. How reliable is my fitness tracker when estimating the number of calories burned in my exercise? That's a good, it's a really good question. And um, a question that I will often get asked, it'll either, it'll be either be asked in the form of a question to me, like by, by, by a client in Valley to Peak, or they will mention it in their conversation. Like, for example, they'll say, okay, well, I've, I'm eating this much. And according to Garmin, I'm, I'm burning this much on my activity. So should I increase or should I decrease my intake based off of that? And so if the question's saying, how accurate is it? It's not. <laughs> um, and the reason why that is, is because so Garmin takes basically an algorithm. It also uses your heart rate, but there are, there are some pretty standard factors that really don't involve you. And there's a number of different variables that you could go down, another, a number of different rabbit trails that you could go down to explain why it's inaccurate. But I think one of the best, one of the best um, examples would be when you're, when you're looking at, when you're looking at the number of calories burned in an exercise, it's going to be different based on every person. So for example, me at five foot six, 150 pounds, 
year one of training will consume a lot more fuel and exercise compared to five foot six hundred and fifty pounds fourteen years later, right? Because my body is just more accustomed to exercising, so it doesn't burn as many as it did whenever it first started. And likewise, when you first begin an exercise, even if it's the exact same, like if you start in the exact same year, you work out, if you like, let's say you're on a treadmill for 45 minutes and you burn 500 calories the first time you do it. If you keep getting on that and you keep getting on that and you keep getting on that three months later, even if you're doing the same exercise, the number of calories burned at that time interval could be 50% of what it was when you first started, because from an economy standpoint, you've gotten better. Now, the good news is, is because is that that's, that's the value of training is you're getting better. So the body's becoming more and more adaptive to it. So if you're using, if you're using activity as a way to help create a calorie deficit and help you lose fat and all of a sudden you've plateaued and people will say like, I'm doing the exact same thing. I don't understand what happened. That's the problem. <laughs> You're doing the exact same thing. And the body is basically yawning and saying, we're very used to this. This is nothing to us anymore. And so like you might notice that when you first start working out, doing something, you're just sweating a ton. You know, you leave the, the gym or you leave the trail or you leave whatever, just with sweat rolling off of you, you do that exact same workout, call it two to three times per week. By month three, it's, you get back to the, you know, back to the truck or back to the car or whatever. And it's like, you've not even done anything. And that's because of a fuel economy standpoint. So if you go back to the question itself and say, is it accurate? It's inaccurate because it's not taking into account a number of different variables that really hone in on exactly what your specific needs are. So what are some, you know, you talked about plateauing and the same effect lasting for a bit before you might have to, you know, mix things up a little bit to continue to see, you know, goals you have reached. Um, part of the question is what are some alternative ways to adjust my intake if my exercise increases, or you could say if I maybe hit that plateau. So the, 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 the gold standard is to hook someone up to a machine that has a mask and measures how much, carbon dioxide you breathe off, how much oxygen you take in and compares it against an algorithm. And it gives you an actual metric on what you're using. Assuming either A, no one's got access to that. B, no one's to spend the money on that. C, no one wants to deal with all of that. Everything else is, is still guessing, but it's really good guesses. And I only, I only say it's good guesses because this is what I've used for years and years and years, and it's been accurate. So number one, if the exercise is pretty vigorous, you're noticing that it's really increasing your heart rate a lot. You're having to work fairly hard. I think it's safe to add in roughly hundred calories for every 10 minutes. You run for 20 minutes, 200 calories, 30 minutes, 300 calories, and so on and so forth. That's a rough estimate. And I'm sure people are screaming like, well, that's, is that going to be true for the 150 pound guy and the 300 pound guy? Cause the heavier guy is obviously going to burn more fuel cause he's carrying more weight. Just like if the 150 pound guy strapped on a 150 pound backpack, it would be similar. Yes. I use it as a general rule of thumb because you got to remember the 300 pound guy, the body is used to weighing 300 pounds. It's, it's, it's adapted to weighing that much. So 10 minutes of exercise, he may be running a 
14 minute mile while the 150 pound guy is running a seven minute mile also used to that same weight so it's a general rule of thumb but it's what i've used if it's moderate you could do somewhere between five and seven if it's a light five or, or less calories per minute active the other thing and this is a little more let's call it scientific track what you're eating be very intentional about it and then monitor your weight right so let's say that you're you know you increase your activity and you find that over a seven day week seven day period you're at 2500 calories and your weight's dropping i would add on 10 percent. add on 250 calories that takes you up to 2750 seven days rinse and repeat i would i would keep it linear people will want to cycle it they'll eat less on recovery days and they'll eat high on a long run day but you have to remember that the body is recovering from the long run so you still need higher calorie intake on the day after you don't want to cycle it so you have people that'll will do that and will say like well i don't understand why i'm still losing so much weight because the training volume goes up so much it's like well because you're not covering the recovery on on your low days so i think it's easier just to find a number and to keep it linear aim for that number every day even rest days i think it and this might help clarify that i think what most people imagine is that calories in calories out it's like i don't know i want to say like one-on-one -on -one. i don't know if that's the right term but i think to realize that the calories aren't just fueling what you're doing right now there's things going on within the body whether it be recovery or prep or whatever that also require those calories it's not a i think one-to-one -one ratio those calories are being used in other ways or being burned i should say in other ways too right besides just exercise yeah i mean you have you have to remember it is covering exercise it's also covering recovery it's also covering your heart beating it's also covering your lungs working i mean it's it's covering everything and so you know what's so tricky about i don't know if it's i don't want to say my job or my role or whatever is you know you, you a lot of people are interested in fat loss and there's often this like underlying fear to eat anything because calories cause you to gain weight and that's true too many do but they also help you recover and to do the things you love to do and to be able to keep up with your kids like this week i made an instagram post and i went back and forth on whether or not to make it because it felt uh well you know i always struggle with like not wanting to be arrogant <laughs> i didn't think it sounded arrogant basically it was just saying one of the best things that ever happened to me in my weight loss was the ability to be able to do my workout in the morning to work a full day and still have enough energy to play with my kids i mean that that alone yes i have to pay attention to kind of what i eat and and my habits but i also have to remember to make sure i'm eating enough because i have i have a i have a job after my job too and i want to be sure that i cover that and we're going to cover this topic here in a second, but there is a there is a piece of the exercise calorie equation that is usually not accounted for, and that's the amount of calories needed once the exercise stops. So yes, exercise in and of itself is consuming calories, but the recovery afterwards is also a part of that equation, which is you know one thing we'll look at in a minute. So kind of as a as a look back, like a general rule of thumb, if it's pretty hard activity, pretty challenging for you, pretty long, 10 calories per 10 minutes. I'm sorry, not 10 calories per 10 minutes. 
10 calories per minute for vigorous exercise, five to seven calories per minute for moderate exercise, five calories per minute for low exercise. So that would translate into, and where I kept getting hung up at was for every 10 minutes, that would be a hundred calories if the exercise is fairly vigorous. So apologize if that, if that confused anyone. And then play with it. See what happens to your weight, what happens to your performance, because there is always this fine line. Like, even if you're trying to lose fat, you do want to make sure that you're getting enough protein to recover the muscle and avoid injury. You do want to make sure that you're getting enough carbohydrate to get through an actual workout. The only thing that makes nutrition does not make you better at a certain activity. Training does. You have to have a good training plan. The nutrition just helps you recover and fuel for that training plan. And then the execution of that training plan is what actually makes you better. So there is a fine line that exists there and you want to make sure that you, you don't veer too far on either side of it, or you will lose one of the goals you're trying to hit. This is a, this is a bit of an extension um, to what was asked already, but how is Garmin's training load determined? Yeah. So this, uh, your, you'll, you know, your watch will give you a lot of readout. And I, I, for, for the record, I think that some of that, some of that, um, data is extremely helpful and valuable to watch, but I would not take it to, I wouldn't take it all the way to gospel. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't what we call chase the number, right? I, I would also incorporate my brain. <laughs> so Garmin has a, um, has a feature where it will determine your training load. And basically what it's doing is it's measuring the sum of that equation we talked about after the exercise is over. And so this is called, we had a whole podcast on this and it's called the post-workout oxygen consumption equation basically. And it's looking at how many calories does your body need after the workout's over to recover the more vigorous the exercise, the higher that EPOC is going to be, right? And so Garmin determines the training load based off of that more vigorous exercise, higher training load, low vigorous exercise, lower training load. And then they give you these ranges to fall within either low, ideal, or too high. And the premise is, okay, well, obviously you want to be somewhere in the ideal range, anything too low probably means you're not going to reap any sort of a benefit. You're not going to perform better. So if you've peaked and you, you can't figure out why you can't get better, it could be that the training load is too high. If you've peaked in any of your endurance training or workout training or whatever, that you've been trying to keep too high of a load and poor recovery. And so you can't, you can never get beyond these, these peaks. You just sort of stay where you're at, which is incredibly discouraging. This next part of the question takes into account another feature um, of Garmin, and it's, do my calorie needs change at all for different heart rate zones? That's an excellent question. So heart rate zones are all the rage right now. Everyone and their mom and dad seem to be targeting heart rate zones for training with the idea of there being five different heart rate zones and all of those are based on a percentage of your maximum heart rate. The idea is if you train within a certain zone, you'll reap the benefit of that zone. So if you train in a lower zone, you can stretch the endurance more. If you straight, if you 
train in a higher zone, then you reap the benefits of fast work, right? Not necessarily endurance, but just quick sprint type work. From a fueling standpoint, and I'm going to throw this in here too. We um, So in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a podcast with the director of coaching over at Uphill Athlete, who's um, sort of wrote the book on this and talk exactly about this more. Uh, cause I think that that'll be, I think it'll be super helpful. So from a fuel economy standpoint, the idea is at these lower heart rate zones, your, cons- your body's consuming less carbohydrate, going to rely more on fat, which means that you can stretch the endurance longer. There is some back and forth on how true that is. It is true that, you know, the, the lower, the less hard you work, the, the less the body relies on carbohydrate. The harder the activity, the body relies almost entirely on carbohydrate. So if you're walking down the road, probably not relying a lot on carbohydrate as fuel. If you are sprinting up a steep hill, heavy reliance, probably 100% reliance on carbohydrate. However, that does not mean you should fuel on fat because the muscle still contracts the fastest off of carbohydrate. So what I think in terms of the heart rate zones is this. If it's a lower heart rate zone, call it zone one, two, and three, you probably have longer periods of time between how often you need to fuel versus higher heart rate zones. But it does not, I would say it does not change how you should fuel. So for example, heart rate zone, heart rate two and three, maybe you take in carbohydrate once every two hours whereas in zones three and four you're taking in carbohydrate every 45 minutes because that that reservoir of carbohydrate in the muscle is draining so rapidly that you have to fill it up if you're in a lower heart rate zone it does there's always a dynamic the the body is always relying on a dynamic sources of fuel like it's never just burning carb unless it's really vigorous activity it's never just burning fat there's always a little bit of contribution from all of the sources so if and if you are in a lower heart rate zone you will eventually deplete those stores and hit a wall so it still remains important that you do refuel although the time between those fuelings is probably longer because you have better fuel economy. You're not burning through it as quick. The time between them and the amount at each fueling up. <laughs> uh, the inner the the amount at each interview interval would stay the same, but you would have longer stretches. So, for example, lower heart rate zones. Let's say that you still would probably do between sixty and ninety grams of carbohydrate, but you could do it every call it two hours. The higher heart rate zones, 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate, but every 45 minutes to one hour, right? And so it's important to remember that because like, for example, even if you're training for an endurance event, there are very likely to be some tempo runs incorporated, which is periods of time within your run where you are trying to push harder than is comfortable because that ultimately stretches and makes you faster and and, and better in endurance. So... On those runs, you would want to fuel more often. But if you're if you are specifically targeting a heart targeting a heart rate zone that's lower, you have the ability to to fuel less often. And even if you don't have a, a fancy watch with you know a heart rate tracker, you don't wear a heart rate monitor or anything like that, you could think of it as even your breathing 
or even your ability to carry on conversation. So those lower heart rate zones, you should be able to carry on a conversation for the most part. Your breathing should not be really labored. It should be pretty smooth. You should almost feel like you could do this forever. That's the idea. You, you could do it forever, right? And so the higher heart rate zones, it's a little challenging to carry on a conversation. You can get five, six, seven words out, then you got to breathe. Five, six, seven words out, then you got to breathe. Breathing is labored. You're probably feeling like I'm not going to be able to do this forever. But at the same time, you're not redlining either. You're not feeling like, okay, this is probably going to go another 20 seconds and I'm going to need to stop. That's like max heart rate and inability to do it. Why are you laughing at me? Because everything you're explaining is what they talk about when a woman is in labor and having a baby. It's just taking me back. There you go. So ladies who are preparing to have a baby, wear a heart rate monitor, take your carbs in and tell them the dietitian said, look, I should be getting some Sour Patch Kids in every 45 minutes. What's what's like, what's the technical term where like, no, like right before you're about to have labor, there's like staging, pre-staging. So what's the one right before the kid comes out? Let's just call it game time. <laughs> so when you get to like, and it's it's go time. Tell them you need to be either get you get you some dextrose to hook it to an IV, or you need to start popping gummy bears. One of the two because you're you're burning through them pretty quick. Yeah. So uh, from a high level overview, I think the Garmin watches can be tremendously helpful. Um, and even if you like nerding out over spreadsheets, it's it is it is enjoyable to see. I think one of the best things to monitor. I should just say this. I ignore most of what Garmin tells me. It's nice to have the GPS feature. It's nice to track time. It's nice to track miles. And it's nice to track heart rate, even if it's not with a chest strap. Because what you'll start to see over time is you will start to see your average heart rate decrease. And that's a very good sign that you are improving in your fitness. And then you've got to adjust your training plan, etc. But like if you think about... Um, endurance training a lot of people want to track miles but if you're doing trail running you probably would be better off tracking minutes because not every trail is going to be the same some trails are going to be more challenging so if you're trying to cover 10 miles on a pretty simple trail and it takes you call it an hour and a half and then you're trying to cover 10 miles on a really difficult trail that's going to take you you know five hours or so there's a tremendous increase there. And when you're talking about balancing training loads and recovery and progression, those are the type of things to pay attention to. And so if you're, if you're tracking all of that and you're, you know, using your, your breaths or you're using your heart rate or whatever, I think it can be helpful. It's uh, so, you know, ref, referenced earlier that we're going to have um, Chantel on from a pill athlete. I did some consultations with her and one of the things that, you know, she had said to me, she was like, don't be married to the numbers, you know, also go by kind of what you're feeling and how you're progressing and, you know, enjoy the process. So we'll have her on to talk a lot about that and some high altitude stuff with nutrition. She's got a background that's um, immersed in high altitude research. And so it'll be exciting to have her on. We're probably going to break it up into two parts because there's so much, but that will be coming. And then also coming, um, Stephen, who works for us, has been working super hard developing something new for this year. And so we are coming out with um, basically a membership part of the website uh, for Valley to Peak that's going to house everything education. 
We're going to have a 16-week course that anyone who wants to go through can go through. There'll be like a workbook included and toying with the idea of doing small group coaching within that as well. And so all of that will be coming out soon. If you're interested in hearing about that when it launches, I will put a link in the show notes. You can sign up there. And once it launches, I will send you an email to let you know that it's live. You will not get a ton of stuff from us other than that. But if you're interested in that, it'd be a great way to get some exposure to, to Valley to Peak and some learn some really easy to understand but profound information on nutrition. And we will uh, put that pet that link in the uh, in the show notes. So appreciate everybody joining us. If you've got any questions, you can send those over to info at v2pnutrition.com and we will cover them on some other rainy Saturday afternoon. Thanks for joining.